This week on Instoried, why you shouldn't listen to talking snakes. It went bad for your earliest relatives. It'll go bad for you too. We also talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what it's about, and what it means to be evil in the Bible. And the other reason people wear clothes, according to Genesis chapter three. Welcome to Instoried, I'm Corey Smith. We are picking up in the story right where we left off last week. I gave my take on the famous Charlie Daniels song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and I think the story told through the lyrics of that song, in the end, plays out substantively the same as Genesis chapter 3. Human pride is what the devil successfully plays to in both cases. And If the devil has to forfeit something to achieve that, so be it, because he knows his time is short. Genesis chapter 3 resumes with the serpent explaining to the woman why God can't be trusted. He's holding out on them. He's got something good he just doesn't want them to have. For God knows, the serpent says, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, these yous that the serpent is saying are plural in the Hebrew. So we should hear it as, when y'all eat of it, y'all's eyes will be open and y'all will be like God. The only thing about saying it that way is all those y'alls kind of makes it sound like the devil has spent way too much time down in Georgia. The point here being, we have to remember that although the serpent and the woman are the ones doing the talking, the man is right there hearing every word, and this revelation that the serpent makes is for his ears as well as hers. He's talking to both of them. Two things I want to highlight about what the serpent has just revealed to them. The first is that what he says is 100% true. He says, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And sure enough, you skip a couple of verses down, and the narrator says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. The serpent says, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And if you skip down to the last paragraph of the chapter, God himself acknowledges, behold, the human has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. The serpent doesn't bait them with false promises. He tells them what really will happen if they eat that fruit. The second thing is, although the information he gives is 100% accurate, It's what the serpent implies that is actually the deception. And this gets back to how he leads into this part by saying, for God knows. God knows what will happen when you eat this fruit. I know what will happen when you eat this fruit. It seems only the two of you don't know. You mean he didn't tell you? Well, let me tell you. And this information he gives them are actually the last words that he says. He leaves them to wonder, why did God hold out on us? Why did he not only not choose to tell us about this wonderful thing, but forbid us to eat of it, trying to block any chance of us even discovering it on our own? The serpent successfully manages to rob them of their trust in God. 
And the question that will now echo in human minds from this point forward is, why is God withholding good things from me? It's a question that isn't native to our thinking, but it's a question we arrive at because of an outside influence. And the whole point is to erode our trust in God. There's a question that gets asked sometimes about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that is, why did God just put it right there in the middle of the garden? Isn't he kind of opening the door for this whole disaster to begin with? If there's something there that the humans don't need to eat for whatever reason, wouldn't it make sense for him to just not put it there at all? I think the answer is ultimately that that isn't even an option because of what kind of creatures humans are. It's another layer to the what kind of being are we question. But before we're able to fairly answer that question, we need to start by taking a look at what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, what it represents. Knowledge of good and evil sounds like knowing right from wrong. And while that is a piece of it, it's not quite that simple. After all, the man and the woman both knew it was not okay to eat from the tree that God had made off-limits for them. They can't plead ignorance for going against something God said. They already knew they shouldn't do it, and they knew that before their eyes were opened. And speaking of eyes being opened, there is a lot going on in this part of the story that has to do with the woman seeing. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to give one insight. So she sees the tree is good, it's a delight to her eyes, and it can give her insight. Or, as the insight part is usually translated, wisdom. The tree can make her wise. Now we're getting closer to what it is this tree represents. It also helps to get a better understanding of what evil means in knowledge of good and evil. Evil, or ra in Hebrew, is more broad in the Old Testament than how we usually mean it today. When we say evil, especially in regards to a person, we mean that a person is about as bad as they can be. Bad guys are bad, but only someone worthy of supervillain status is truly evil. We tend to reserve the word for people we see as just irredeemably bad. The Bible has a much lower threshold for when a thing or person is evil. The way we use the word bad is probably much closer to what evil means in the Old Testament. A thing could be really bad and be evil, but a thing could also be just kind of bad. It would still be evil, just not as much. There are even some instances where a thing is evil, but doesn't necessarily have a moral component to it. Like if you've ever had a bad day. In biblical Hebrew, you could say you had an evil day. But don't say that, though. People might really worry about you. Do you know what the longest book of the Bible is? Some of you are thinking Psalms, and if it were about the number of chapters, that would be right. But as far as actual length based on word count, Psalms is third longest. Genesis is number two, and the top spot goes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a really long book, and this Hebrew word ra for evil or bad 
appears there more than any other book of the Bible. It shows up in the Psalms a lot too, but the book with the second most occurrences of Ra in the Old Testament is Proverbs, which is a much shorter book by comparison. Proverbs actually has the highest concentration of the use of the word Ra in the Bible. And this makes great sense because of what the purpose of Proverbs is. It's about instruction and wisdom, learning how to choose the good life over the bad life. So this is what the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents. Tree of wisdom is actually a good way for us to think about it. But that also might introduce another problem for us to solve. Because isn't having wisdom a good thing? We just mentioned the point of reading Proverbs is to gain wisdom. So why in the world would God not want these humans to have wisdom? He's put them in charge of this world he wants them to have dominion over. It's a tremendous responsibility. Surely that's going to require some wisdom. It absolutely does require wisdom. And God does want them to be wise. So how did eating from this tree become such a big deal? Let's get back to the story and find out. The woman, now that she sees the fruit of this tree can give her the wisdom of God, she takes it. This begins a pattern of repetition for the words see and take that will come up quite a few more times in the Bible. And whenever it does, it is the writer intentionally taking our minds back to this scene right here. She takes it and notice what happens. Well, let's notice what doesn't happen first. If you remember from last week, when the woman is educating the serpent on the rules of the garden, or at least she thinks she is, she tells the serpent that if she or her husband even touches the fruit of that tree, they will die. Well, here she is, reaching out and doing the unthinkable, taking the fruit of the tree in her hands, and she doesn't die. It may even be that her misunderstanding emboldens her to go through with it. If she touched the fruit and didn't die, maybe she won't die if she eats it either. She takes it, she eats it, she shares it with her husband, who is standing right there with her. And just as promised by the serpent, the eyes of them both are immediately opened. And the first thing they realize is their own nakedness which is so alarming to them, they immediately sew together some fig leaves to try and cover up. From here, they try to hide from God. But when God starts to question them, and the man says they hid from God because they were naked, which is kind of funny considering naked Adam is the only Adam God has ever known. So what's changed? As far as nakedness goes, nothing has changed. And yet, everything has changed, and they all three know it, God and the humans. God asks the man, who told you that you were naked? The answer there is, nobody. Not the serpent, not the woman. There was no, hey, honey, did you notice we were naked? No one told them. They came into that knowledge themselves because of what they had done. The humans will need wisdom, in order to do the good work God gave them to do. The problem with what they did was not in gaining wisdom. It's the way they went about it. God's question is, who told you? Who is it that they are to be trusting in order to gain wisdom? 
who should wisdom come from? Who should be telling them how to live life in a way that is good and not bad? Take note here that the serpent is not the one they are gaining wisdom from. It's actually not a matter of seeking wisdom from God versus seeking wisdom from the serpent. Taking and eating the fruit is about having or seeking wisdom for themselves outside of God. Instead of receiving wisdom from God at God's pace, they are trying to do this on their own. They are insisting on their own independence, their own autonomy, when they were made to be fully dependent creatures. They are trying to find a way around God instead of keeping God at the center of wisdom. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then represents not just wisdom, but a means of gaining wisdom apart from God. The tree is right there. You can gain wisdom by eating its fruit. But God wants them to seek Him as their sole source of wisdom. Now we can circle back to the question from earlier. Why does God even put the tree there to begin with? It's nothing but trouble. If you take away the tree, problem solved. Because then the humans will have to receive wisdom from God alone. But that solution will not work because it's not an option. And it's not an option because a garden without that tree would not be representative of how God made humans. Humans can choose to seek the wisdom of God to trust Him, or they can choose to seek wisdom on their own terms and trust themselves. Only a garden with that tree, that troublesome tree, can accurately portray life inside the human heart. Well, if Adam and Eve wouldn't have eaten that fruit, the world wouldn't be in the kind of mess it is today, now would it? Well, if we ever think that the moral of the story is about the world falling into sin and death because the first man and woman failed to follow God's simple instructions about what to eat and what not to eat, we're missing the point. This is about circumventing God to gain wisdom on our own. And this is something that you and I struggle with every single day of our lives. We're all just chips off the old block. Proverbs chapter 3 is about this very thing. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. It has been the human tendency, the human struggle ever since, to try and navigate this life without consulting the one who came up with the whole idea of life to begin with. On the one hand, the wisdom gained by the humans through eating the fruit does seem to have something empowering about it. God himself acknowledges at the end of the chapter that they have become like God in knowing good and evil, having some semblance of divine wisdom. But on the other hand, when we see just how they react when their eyes are first open and they realize they are naked and try to figure out what to do about it, they don't strike me as being very wise at all, and I'll say why in a minute. But before that, I feel like getting at exactly what their nakedness represents before and after their awareness of it kicks in is a bit difficult. 
There is a hint of it at the end of chapter 2, which says, And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I can totally understand not having a need to cover up here. It's just the two of them, their husband and wife, and the God who made them. If that's what it means to not be ashamed, I think we can track with that pretty easily. But after their eyes are open, that unashamedness obviously goes away because their nakedness is the first thing they become aware of, and immediately they are looking to cover themselves. Their living situation hasn't changed. It's still just them as a married couple and God. So our notions of modesty are clearly not what's at issue here. And watch how they proceed. The effort to cover up isn't super successful. They're sewing leaves together, for goodness sake. And I'm sure they don't have a lot of options for making clothing on the spot, but you know this isn't going to amount to much. So they're going to hide. They hear God coming. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I know a lot of people love this verse, love the idea of Adam and Eve getting to have evening walks with God in the garden and looking forward to getting to do the same with God in heaven ourselves. I don't want to do any damage to that beautiful idea with what I'm about to say, but it probably wasn't exactly like what you might picture in your mind. If what you picture in your mind is God, in human form, going on an evening walk, side by side, step by step, with the humans. The good news of the New Testament is that God certainly did come in human form and walk alongside humans all around Galilee 2,000 years ago. But that's probably not what is meant here, because God, most of the time in the Old Testament, is spirit not human-like or otherwise physical, but spirit, most of the time. And I think there are reasons to believe that is the case here. This phrase, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the majority of our English translations follow the King James in translating this Hebrew word as cool, but it's an interesting choice. The Hebrew word is ruach, which we mentioned a few weeks ago as usually meaning spirit or breath. This is the second time ruach comes up in Genesis. The first is all the way back at the beginning, second verse of the Bible, which was, and the spirit of God, the ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the deep. So how does this help us? Well, we could say wind instead of cool. Ruach is also translated wind many times in the Old Testament. So we could say walking in the garden in the wind of the day. The other piece of this is the Hebrew word for walking doesn't have to mean walking on legs like a human, unless a human is the thing being talked about. If we're not talking about a human, but the Spirit of God, that word could simply be translated as moving. And if we do that, then we have, they heard the sound of the Lord God moving in the garden in the wind of the day. And to me, this just makes so much more sense. What's the sound of someone walking through a garden? Pretty quiet. Maybe too quiet to hear unless they're almost on you. But what is the sound of the wind moving through the trees? You can hear it in your mind right now. The rustling of leaves on swaying branches, which, if the wind is strong enough, can be pretty loud. The sound of the presence of the Spirit of God is the sound of the wind moving through the garden. 
And this is why the newly wise humans don't seem all that wise to me in this moment. Because you're not going to hide from the wind. It's almost comical, and it's meant to be. They can't hide from the wind, and they can't adequately conceal their nakedness with fig leaves. That's the reason the man says he's hiding. He's hiding because he's still naked, and he knows it. But that still doesn't answer the question of why nakedness is now a problem all of a sudden. Unless nakedness represents innocence or honesty or vulnerability. The trust that the humans had in God before this happened has been broken. And they're also afraid. God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Did they hide not only to conceal their nakedness, but because they were afraid God was coming to kill them? The man and the woman have taken on guilt for their decision not to trust and listen to God about the tree. And that guilt is affecting them. I think how they handle their nakedness is a response to guilt. And it's why, as silly as it looks, they're trying to hide from God in plain sight. You can't hide from the wind in the middle of a garden. You can't hide from God who is spirit. And the fig leaves are a pitiful attempt to conceal what they've done. They don't think they can have with God now what they had before. How can they ever again stand before him and each other naked and unashamed? Well, quite frankly, it takes the rest of the story of the Bible to work that out. And as sons and daughters of these first humans, we are ourselves caught up in this story. Because in our most honest moments, we know we often choose to trust in our own limited understanding when we need to seek God's wisdom. We know we often choose the bad instead of the good, and it affects us. It affects our ability to be honest and vulnerable with one another and with God, and we conceal ourselves from others much of the time. And silly as it sounds, we often try to hide from God in plain sight. Is there a way to break these cycles? Thankfully, the answer is yes. And God plants a seed of redemption, even in the midst of what's happening at this point in the story. And next week, we'll see what that is. But it's a promise we need to be aware of and take hold of, so that we can walk with the wind at our side and not feel afraid, but feel loved. We hope you're enjoying and storied. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. We'll see you next week.